It's my great uh, honor to introduce my brother, um, Sebastian Cardozo, who's professor of sacred scripture at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton, Nebraska. He's here for the summer teaching at Christendom College. And I was thinking, what do you say about your brother? <laughs> All kinds of things. <laughs> what can I say? He's trying to kill me. I've tried to kill him. That's about as best of an introduction as I can give. So, my brother Sebastian Cardozo. Thank you. Well, you guys going around, why don't we uh, begin in prayer? misunderstanding over this issue. So I'll read you just a few of the paragraphs here. Just listen. Perhaps the one most important fact which distinguishes Bible-believing Protestants from their Catholic neighbors is the Protestant insistence that each individual needs to know God personally. In fact, the very reason that Christ came to earth, died for our sins, and rose again was, taken, uh, was to take away the sins that separate us from God so that we can know him in a personal way. The Bible teaches that each individual should have a continual relationship directly with God. This is true. Not a long-distance relationship through an image or the same that the image represents. One of the major themes in the Bible from its beginning in Genesis all the way through the last book, Revelation, listen to this, is the Lord's hatred for images. The Lord's hatred for images. The reason is, is that they separate man from direct contact with him by providing something else to pray to and trust in. So the very concept of the image, what you're hearing there is a, a, a problem that is oftentimes very common in the Protestant world. It goes, it's an ancient problem, and it goes all the way back to the Gnosticism uh, that we had uh, afflicting the early church. 
a fear of the material world. But anyway, that's another topic. Most Catholics are very surprised to find that one of the Ten Commandments prohibits the use of images. Now I'll need a volunteer for this. <laughs> who, can, who can stand up and recite for me the first three commandments? We'll just do those. One volunteer. Come on. <laughs> how, how about Walter? <laughs> we have some NHS students here, some Christian grads. Give yes. a volunteer over here. Stand up. The first three commandments. Um, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have false gods before me. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no false gods before me. Um, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not take the Lord, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Everyone agree? Any disagreement out there? That's right. And, 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 um, keep holy the Lord's day. Oh, right, right, right. And three, keep holy the Lord's day. Right? The three, the first three commandments. Any disagreement? Yeah. No. <laughs> not anymore, Jennifer. So. The first three the first three commandments we've all agreed with. We all agree. Those are the first three guess how you learned them as you were a kid, right? Well, listen to this. The mystery of the missing commandment. Most Catholics are very surprised, as you will be here in a second, to find that one of the Ten Commandments prohibits the use of images. I quote the second commandment. Not from some Protestant publication, but from a Roman Catholic Bible. You shall not carve idols for yourself in the shape of anything in the sky above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their father's weakness on the children of those who hate me. Exodus 20, verse 4. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Church regularly teaches the Ten Commandments. All of you, who did not learn the Ten Commandments in Sunday school? Anyone who did not memorize the Ten Commandments as a kid? Anyone? Well, no? In a Catholic church? Well, I, I had a similar education to yours as well. In a church? Not the numbers that we just read, as we'll see. Although if it was a Lutheran church, it would be the same as what we memorized. It consistently eliminates the commandment quoted above. So while the Catholic Church rarely teaches the Ten Commandments in its catechisms, and the children memorize in Sunday school, and then, you know, racks them over the knuckles if they miss one, there's a problem. The fact that the second commandment is skipped altogether, and the omission hidden, shows that it's not a matter of the Catholic Church interpreting it differently from the way others do. If they did not understand that it condemns their images, why would they have removed this commandment from the Catechism and other popular Catholic teaching? Others, in trying to escape the clear teaching of God's Word, claim that images were prohibited in the Old Testament but are now allowed since we are no longer in the times of the Old Testament. Okay, well fine, the Old Testament, book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 4, sure, says that, but that's the Old Testament. I mean, we don't have circumcision laws, we don't have kosher laws anymore. Everything's changed. And he says, but that's not true. The fatal weakness of this argument is that it just is not true. The New Testament speaks a great deal about images and always against them just as does the Old Testament. One of the earlier passages to be written in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Quote, I am telling you whom I love to shun the worship of idols. This theme runs right through the New Testament. We even find it in 1 John chapter 5, one of the last books to be written in the New Testament. There we read the very last verse, in fact, of that chapter. My little children, be on your guard against idols. In between these verses which I have quoted are others too numerous to list here. But I encourage you to look them up for yourself. You will see that images are prohibited, more or less, all through the New Testament. He has a list of quotes. It goes on and on. So then, what do you think about that? 
turn to Exodus chapter 20 and see if what we read in a Jack Chick publication, which you usually can't trust, isn't actually there. Yes, don't think logically. You can't apply logic to a system that has none. <laughs> so, Exodus chapter, was, the point was raised, there aren't Jack Chick publications, little cartoon strips, and aren't those images as well? Yes, thinking logically, you can't do that when you read Jack Chick publications. Exodus chapter 20. Everyone there? By the way, does anyone not have a Bible with them? We have lots of them here. Anyone not have a Bible? Raise their hand. Up and high. You have Bibles? And there's hands that went up without Bibles? We know that at least there are some Catholics among us here. Right? The rest of you Protestants turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. That is a horrible misconception, and it's, it's unfortunately some truth to it. Uh, we'll be talking about the issue of the Bible and the Bible alone, which is an issue that oftentimes separates the Catholics from the Protestant world. There's another one on the shelf back there, too. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Moses is at Mount Sinai. He's brought Israel from Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai. And they're standing at the foot of the mountain. Moses goes up. He receives the Ten Commandments on the tablets. We've all seen the movie, right? And verse 4. In fact, we'll start with verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. You shall not have other gods before me. Right? That was what we heard. That's the first commandment you learned in Sunday school. Number two. What was it? Are you reading chapter 20? Chapter 20? Right. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the yeah. first commandment you learned, right? What's the second commandment you learned? You shall not take the Lord, the, the name of the Lord in vain. What do we have here? You shall not make for yourself graven images. Then look down to verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Verse 6, remember the Sabbath. Jack Chick publications are oftentimes, you know, wrought with errors, but it sounds like he has a good point here. Huh? How many believe in the Bible? <laughs> Catholics, so the hand goes up kind of slowly. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, that's a nice one. Just an extension of the first commandment. Classic response. But look what it says. You shall not. Verse 3. Verse 4. You shall not. Verse 4. Verse 7. You shall not. From a literary standpoint, any, anyone educated in literary studies could tell you that these are distinct propositions. Nice try, Steve. Steve's point is correct, but we'll, we'll address that in a second. The reason why there are a variety of ways that the commandments are ordered is because the commandments are given in two different places, in the book of Exodus and then again in the book of Deuteronomy. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, everyone who heard these commandments enunciated by Moses from God are dead. The only people that end up entering into the promised land are the little kids who had not re refused to go in in the first place. So they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. So at the end of the wandering wilderness, Moses stands up on a rock, turns around, gives a big long sermon because he's not going in. And he reminds them of everything that's happened to their ancestors from the time he brought them out of Exodus all the way to the present moment. They're going to go into the promised land with Joshua leading them. And so Moses gives us his, his last opportunity to remind them of things. And he retells the story. And so in Deuteronomy, you have a retelling of the story of Sinai as well. And there you get a list of the commandments. And from those two different lists, 
You have two different traditions of how you're going to divide up the Ten Commandments. We know later on in Exodus chapter 32 that we hear of the series of the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings, the Ten Statements. So the concept of the Ten. The phrase thou shalt or thou shalt appears more than ten times. But the idea of the Ten appears in the Bible. So we're, how you're going to divide one or the other up has uh, oftentimes varied throughout the history of Judaism and Christianity. It's really irrelevant how you're going to break it up. But in the Old Testament, you had to know this information. How you want to list it? Is it the first, the second, the third? You know, is one uh, part B of the first part or the second part? It's irrelevant. It's all the same information. And so, again, there's variation even within Protestantism between Lutherans and Calvinists and things on how you're going to break them up. But notice, though, that you didn't memorize your kid to say about the graven images. How many people, for how many people is this the first time you've seen this verse? Verse 4. It's okay. Raise your hand right. Hmm? All right. So why, if the Bible says this, and you Catholics just raised your hands and said, you believe in the Bible. And the Bible says it's about graven images, but we just all turn and pray to a plastic statue. Poor excuse for a graven image. It'd be nice if you had a marble or something. We can work on that, some donations maybe. But, uh, <laughs> Will you do it now? Yes. In light of this? What's going on here? If you look at the handout I gave you, I'll read you the text of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. This was not an issue that came up in the last 50 years in America. This isn't an issue that the Jehovah's Witnesses suddenly came up with and thought, wow, look at that. I wonder if the Catholics know about this. Oftentimes they don't, but... This isn't a new idea, a new question, a new concept. The Seventh Ecumenical Council declared, we therefore define with all certitude, accuracy, that just as the figure of the precious and life-giving cross, so also venerable and holy images, as well as paintings and mosaic as other materials, should be set forth in holy churches of God, and on the sacred vessels, and on the vestments, and on the hangings, and in pictures, both in houses and by the wayside. To wit, the figure of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, Christ, our spotless lady, the mother of God, of the honorable angels, of all the saints and all pious people. For by so much more frequently as they are seen in artistic representation, by so much more readily are men lifted up to the memory of their prototypes and to a longing after them. And to these should be given due salutation, honorable reverence, not indeed that true worship of faith, which pertains to alone to the divine nature, but according to ancient and pious custom. The Seventh Ecumenical Council, 787, against the heresy of iconoclasm, the destruction of the icons or the images. Iconoclasm was a heresy that labeled the making of graven images, that is imagery that is carved, as idolatry. It's a horrible time. The church lost a huge tradition of artwork. Icons and statues disappeared, turned into rubble, burned in the streets. Tragedy. As tragic as the burning of the Library of Alexandria in the ancient world. Horrible loss. Thank God the church held a council to discuss the matter because some of the people burning these things and destroying them were priests and bishops as well. There was confusion over this issue, and the reason is because of the influence of Islam in this, the century before. However, while the issue of iconoclasm, or the heresy of iconoclasm, ended for the Holy Catholic Church centuries ago, there are many here in this room who have experienced it, either pondering the issue themselves, reading a book, talking to a Baptist friend. And so iconoclasm, though officially rejected as a heresy, lives on today unfortunately. 
and confusion of some of the Protestant groups in America primarily. You can see it in the artwork, the decor, the architecture of a church. You drive, if you walk into a Protestant church today, typically the walls are white. No images on the walls, especially of Our Lady, of course, but not even oftentimes. If there is a cross on the wall, if there's one, you won't see a corpus on it. Right? It's a great image. Well, the cross itself is a great image. But, and sometimes you'll find that there's not even a cross on the wall. Right? And this isn't across the board. You go into a nice Missouri Senate Lutheran church, the place is filled with graven images. Right? So, but the average Protestant that you bump into today is not a Missouri Senate Lutheran educated in the history of his church, but rather typically attends a church that looks much like this classroom, though of course with less of these images on it. <laughs> so you can see it in just the architecture of a building. You can see it unfortunately even sometimes in Catholic churches built today. You can see it in the lack of imagery, the lack of statues, the lack of color used in statues and images on the walls. <coughs> and officially you can see it in the doctrine and the teaching of a lot of these churches, especially if you attend one of the Sunday schools. I was just uh, listening to a tape on the issue. So why do these Baptist friends of yours or Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door ask you this question? I remember when I was a kid in, high, in college, Jehovah's Witness showed up the door, right? And they asked me a series of questions I didn't have answers for. They said, if you believe in the Bible and you say you're a Catholic, I was a very good Catholic at that stage, but I said, well, yeah, I'm a Catholic. They said, well, if you believe in the Bible and you're a Catholic, what do you think about this? And they turned me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. And I said, well, this is condemning idolatry and stuff. I don't know. And they said, well, it says graven images. Don't you have statues in your churches? Don't you have icons? Well, I said, well, look. And I tried to use logic. Look, the... Um, in your wallet, don't you have pictures of your friends and things and your family? On your mantle, in a very important place in your house, don't you have a nice put pictures of your grandparents or great-grandparents? Old black and white photos. Sometimes on the day of their death, you put a flower there to remind you of that individual. Well, yeah, but we're not talking about photographs of your relatives and dead friends and things. We're talking about religious imagery. And is that not what this is talking about? So you cannot use, try to use logic or things like that in a conversation like this. What is underlying the discussion is the issue of the Bible and the Bible alone. And we'll talk about that on the third night. The Bible and the Bible alone. The Bible says this, you teach that. Right? Your church teaches this, but the Bible says something else. So let's see if that's what the Bible really says. As you know, this is a Catholic book. There is nothing in this book that contradicts anything you were taught as a, as a kid in Sunday school by the nuns. Unless, of course, you were taught the correct one. But if they were teaching you the faith, there was nothing they taught that was in contradiction to this. But what you will find, though, is if you read the text of the Bible, or a verse of the Bible out of its context. As with any other document, you can easily get confused about its meaning. And this is the tragedy. Because the Baptist who's asking me this question, the Jehovah's Witness that was knocking on my door, they're not trying to confuse me or get me to fall away from following Jesus. They were trying to get me into a closer relationship with Jesus. They were trying to show me what they believed was the truth. And they were concerned for me. So it's a tragedy, this confusion that's out there. So let's look at the context here. Exodus chapter 20, we talked about it briefly while you're turning to there. What was Moses doing? He's bringing the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. Right? They just left Egypt. A place of pagan idolatry. Right? And they get to Mount Sinai, and God gives them a series of commandments which will bind them in covenant, in a contract, with him. And he says this, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Obviously, here the historical context of this, right? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one that did it. The place of bondage. You shall have no other God before me. Right? So God says, look, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Yahweh, Elohim, says, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to Mount Sinai. Therefore, you should have no other gods before me. We're not going to have a pantheon here. As you know, in the ancient world, the pantheon was the norm. The pantheon, all gods. Every culture had local gods, family gods, a god of a town, a god of a region. Many, many, many competing gods. And so every pagan religion had this pantheon. You've heard of the Greeks and the Romans and the gods that they had. Well, this was common throughout the ancient world. What was unique about Israel is that they were monotheists. That is, one god. And you can see the beginning of that teaching of Yahweh to the people saying, I am your god, and in fact, I'm the only god. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a graven image of any likeness that is in anything in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. What does that have to do with the context of graven images? What does the word graven mean? Graven is an old English word. We don't use it anymore. It's the same root for the word carve. Graven is something which is carved. The word grave comes that. We, we still use it there. The graveyard. It's a place where you've carved out a bunch of holes in the ground. Okay. The grave. Something, uh, a carved thing. Graven. That is something which is carved. Yes. A graven image. Something which is carved. This is a graven image. Though it was probably a mold. But it's something that's been formed or fashioned by hand. The ancient world, you carve things with a knife or a chiseling tool out of stone or clay or wood or anything else or gold. So it says you shall not make a graven image. But notice what it said in the verses before. Notice the historical context. I am the Lord your God who's brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Therefore you shall not make any graven images of anything in the heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below the earth. The three, three realms of creation. Anything that is, you shall not bow down to them and serve them. Right? Verse 5 is extremely important for understanding the context. Verse 5 corresponds directly to verse 3. As Steve said, these verses we see in verse 4 is subsumed under what we call the first commandment. Because it's intimately related. A graven image is something in the ancient world was oftentimes made as for, to, uh, to be an idol, to worship. Right? So you make an image of Moloch or Baal, and you fall down and worship it as a god. God said, I am the only true god. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. How do you have gods in the ancient world? Well, you don't sit there and ponder them in your mind. You create forms of them. You can't separate the concept of making a graven image from religion in the ancient world. Israel was unique. Their God was invisible. They only had one God. So, do not make other gods to be with me. Therefore, do not fashion them out of any forms or anything. And verse 5 is the key to unlocking that. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Away in the Hebrew to worship them. And you can see later on in the context of this very, this very same chapter exactly what this is all about and why the church has historically, and even the Jews, understood verses 1 through 4 to be one commandment. Because look at verse 21. And the people stood afar off. Actually, go up to verse 18 there, at the end of the Ten Commandments. Verse 18. Now when all the people perceived the thunderings and the lightnings and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood afar off and, Mo and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak to us lest we die. They're frightened. Moses, you'll be our intercessor. 
And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to prove you, and that the fear of him may be before your eyes, that you may not sin. In verse 21, And the people stood afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Therefore, verse 23, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor gods of gold. You see that verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 are all summarized succinctly in that verse. You shall not make gods of silver and gold to be with me. Thus, what he said earlier about the graven images is intimately attached to what he said in the previous verse about the first commandment. Okay? Now, you may say, or whoever you're talking to about this issue might say, well, that's all fine, but look, it says you shall not make graven images. And you're talking about this worship stuff and falling down, and you're, you know, this is new stuff, I haven't heard this before, but it does say you shall not make graven images, and you told me when you recited the commandments for me that this is one you hadn't memorized. So isn't that a little suspicious? Shouldn't that make you at least wonder? <coughs> Maybe you're being deceived. Well, not only do you read the immediate context of a verse when you're in the Bible or any piece of literature, but you need to look at the broader context as well. And you look at the broader context just as the immediate context confirms what we were just talking about. If you turn to Exodus chapter 25, just a few chapters later, you can see what we're talking about. Well, what about We could have a whole other Bible study on the Sabbath. That'd be great. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that the Sabbath, along with all the kosher laws, they have been nailed to the cross. This is the covenant document from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant. So that's another topic we can talk about at the break if you like. Question answer period. It's a favorite of mine. So Exodus chapter 25. Moses come down the mountain. He's bound the people to covenant with these Ten Commandments. And, chapter 25, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me an offering from every man whose heart makes him willing. You shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering which you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet stuff, fine twine, linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, occasional oil for the lamps, spices for the anointed oil, and for the fragrant incense. Long stones for the setting, for the ephod, for the breastplate, and let them make me, this is verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. According to all I will show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. Two very important things, well, actually three. One, they're going to take up a collection of material stuff. Right? What kind of material stuff? The best stuff they've got. Goat skin, sheep skin, jewels, gold, silver. The best they have, a free will offering is going to be collected throughout all the people and delivered into the hands of Moses. Why? Verse 8, that they may make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's good stuff. God is going to dwell among his people Israel? God and man have not been dwelling together since the Garden of Eden. This is significant. And this is why the Sinai event and the Exodus stories understood in the Old Testament as the climax of salvation history for that covenant. That I may dwell in their midst. And how is he going to make it? It says, make it in accord with the pattern that you feel like. Right? Make it in accord with the pattern of the present day. No? Make it in accord with the architecture of Egypt and their temples. So that the Egyptians will feel comfortable being in, their, in your temple. No? Look what it says. A con- make it according to the pattern that I will show you. Okay? 
As you go through the rest of the story of the Exodus and the building of the sanctuary, you'll see that every section begins and ends with a phrase, and Moses did exactly in accord with the pattern that God showed him on the mountain. Moses is not making a church, a temple, according to his own whims. But he's making a church in accord with how God showed him the pattern he saw on the mountain. What pattern did he see? He was up on the mountain and he saw the glory of God, the heavenly world. And he begins to build the sanctuary according to that pattern. We'll see as he goes through building. He builds a sanctuary that looks very similar to what would you imagine? Where was the last place God and man were dwelling together? The Garden of Eden. Now you'll remember the story in chapter 3. Man was cast out of the garden. God was back there behind the wings of the cherubim saying, I'm back here. Bye. Right? God remained in the garden. The Garden of Eden is the place where God and man dwells together. So he begins to reestablish Eden, a symbol that God and man are now dwelling together in covenant. In verse 10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. So the very first thing that's made now is an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its length. A cubit is about a foot and a half. He's to build a box about the size of a bathtub, dimensions of a bathtub. You've all seen the movie, right, Indiana Jones? It's covered in gold, right? And on top of this bath, he's to put a lid, which is called the mercy seat. Mercy seat? Why would it be a mercy seat? Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. Verse 18, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end, one cherub on the other end. Again, we've all seen the movie. They did a pretty nice job in Indiana Jones, the Raiders Lost Ark, with a rendition of the thing. You're talking about a box about the size of a bathtub, and on top of that bathtub, Inside is the, the, the Ten Commandments, right? He's going to put the Ten Commandments in there. And on top of the ark is going to be two cherubim. A cherub is a winged angel, one of the types of angels. Cherubim is plural. So two of them, with their wings outstretched. And those wings are going to provide something for God. Verse 19, wait one cherub at one end, one cherub at the other end, one piece of the mercy seat. Verse 20, the cherubs shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat. Verse 22, there I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two, the two cherubim that are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about just a few details, some, you know, some, some closing words we've got to work out and get everything done on those Ten Commandments. What's it say? I will speak with you of all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. <laughs> we just talked about the Ten Commandments. The heart of the covenant of Sinai. Not only will the Ten Commandments be spoken of, but everything that Moses has to know for Israel from God, he will hear now from the wings of the cherubim. God is going to rest on the mercy seat in the Shekinah, the glory cloud, resting there in a cloud of darkness in the meeting tent. And Moses will go in there and speak to him between the wings of the cherubim. Again, you should be recalling images from Eden, right? And God placed cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. Moses isn't back in yet, but he's speaking to God's reminder of what he is establishing. Now, either God commanded that you shall not make graven images in Exodus 20, and then now commanded them to be made, and so God's either schizophrenic, or we've misunderstood what he said in Exodus chapter 20. Obviously, we have not. Obviously, God is not schizophrenic. God says consistently what he says in chapter 20. He also must be saying in chapter 25. So there must be a relationship. So we're not talking about some decorations in the temple here. We're talking about the center of the sanctuary that Moses is going to build. This is what the sanctuary will be built around to house the ark. This isn't just some, you know, something to put on the back shelf or in a broom closet. This is the tabernacle where God's commandments will be held as word of God 
on the, on the stone tablets. And on top of there will be a mercy seat where God will speak to him about everything. This is the most important locus on the face of the earth. This is where God and man will once again be in communication. This is the most important type for the incarnation in the Old Testament. Where? On the wings of two great images. This does not sound like a God who has a problem with graven images. This does not sound like a God who hates images. As you go through the rest of the book of Exodus and you see the building of this place, you'll see that it's filled with graven images. There's not a wall that is not covered with embroidery of cherubim and other forms. What Moses did for light and ease of travel through the wilderness for 40 years out of goat skins and things like that, Moses or Solomon later made for permanency in Jerusalem. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 6, you'll see some details. We have another example of how God likes his churches to look. 500 years later, Solomon began to build the temple in Jerusalem. And he built it according to the pattern that he was given by God that had been revealed to David and according to the pattern he'd received from Moses, the sanctuary. The Ark of the Covenant had been brought to Jerusalem by David his father, and Solomon his son began to build a sanctuary like Moses had been commanded to build. But now it doesn't have to be made out of goat skin and little and bits of wood, because they're not traveling through the wilderness anymore with it. They're going to stay in Jerusalem, and God has said, this is where my name will dwell. So he begins to build the same thing in a massive form out of stone. First Kings, First Kings chapter 6, this is the only thing to notice as well. First Kings chapter 6, Solomon begins to build his temple. And we see in chapter 6, Verse 11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house which you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my ordinances and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel. So the temple is going to be like Moses' sanctuary, a place where God may dwell, tabernacle among his people. This is 1 Kings chapter 6. If you have a Dewey Reams or something, that would be 13. And then we start to get the details of the sanctuary. Chapter 6, verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside, the boards, the cedar, the floor of the house, to the rafters, the ceiling. He covered them with inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the, re of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the rafters. He built this within, and the inner sanctuary is the most holy place. The house that is the nave, the front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. Verse 18. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds. Open flowers, all with cedar, no stone was seen. He covered the walls with images of flowers and gourds, and we'll see cherubim and other things as well. Why a gourd? Gourd? I mean, who decorates their houses with gourds? What's a gourd? It's a type of squash that you rarely eat, and there's a reason for it. Uh, and all the other squashes, right? What is the difference of that and a gourd? Well, it's the amount of flesh on the, in, on the inside and the amount of seeds. A gourd is usually about the shape of a pear. And inside, the flesh is very, very thin, almost paper thin. It's very hard. It's got a lot of cellulose in it, woody growth. But it's filled with what? Seeds. Seeds. My brother and I grew up in California, and we used to have, and it showed us how the Indians used to use these Native Americans, they'd shake them for, for music. Right? It's a rattle. We used to use them for dippers. For dippers, yeah, you, you take them and you use them as spoons and things like that. So anyway, a gourd is filled with seeds. Now why in the world would you want some gourd with some seeds hanging in the, in the temple? Makes nice noise. Good rattle. Seeds, the symbol of fertility, the Garden of Eden, fertility reestablished, flowers, the symbol of fertility, the plant life. We don't have a whole lot of time to do a full study of all the Eden imagery here, but I just want to make that point clear that he's reestablishing Eden. So that, as you would expect, what's keeping us out of Eden? 
cherubim, right? Walking the way to the tree of life. And so what does he make in chapter chapter 6, verse 23? In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. A cubit is about a foot and a half, so 15 feet. These aren't small statues. He makes these cherubim 15 foot tall out of olive wood, and he covers them in beaten gold. It'd be expensive to make it completely out of gold, be impractical. So they make it out of wood, and then they cover it in gold. This is how they made the, the golden cap, the same way. So they cover, he covers it in gold, and he made, puts these two cherubim to guard the way to the ark. So he has two very large, two large angels with their wings outspread in the inner sanctuary, and their wings touched the walls of the outer parts of the sanctuary, and the wings touched each other in the middle, and under the wings of the touched cherubim, he puts the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place. Fifteen-foot statue. You might have thought, well, this is child's place in the little cherubim, maybe nobody will notice. But here, fifteen-foot statues in the sanctuary, in the most holy place? If you continue reading, you'll find that the entire temple's filled with this kind of imagery. And not just cherubim. You think, well, cherubim, that's okay. I mean, they are one of those things that's in heaven above, right? In the commandment. But God made them, and he likes them, and they like God, and they sing well, right? So maybe that's okay. But if you look and you continue, you'll see some other details. In verse 29, he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers in the inner and outer sanctuary. You continue reading, you find the place is covered. There's not one spot in the whole temple temple that does not have a graven image somewhere on it, either embroidered on a curtain or carved into the cedar wood or formed out of gold, of cherubim, palm trees. What's a palm tree? You don't have a whole lot of them here in Virginia, right? California. California palm tree gives you shade when you're out in the desert. It's a very important source of life for you. It gives you dates. You can make your houses out of the fronds. Important. Okay, so the palm tree, again, our Eden imagery here. Palm tree, open flowers, gourds, cherubim. Think, well, okay, that's all, that's all all right. I mean, that's not too complicated, complicated there. And it doesn't, this is a far stretch from, you know, Catholic Church. Chapter 7 continues. Chapter 7, verse 23. Then he made the molten sea. What's the molten sea? If you've ever seen diagrams of Moses' sanctuary, Outside, this is chapter 7, outside of the holy place, the main tent, there was a pool for washing. About the size of a very large pot for cooking. They would, the priests would wash their hands before they went up to the holy altar to offer uh, sacrifices. And coming back before they went to the holy place, they washed their hands again. It was both practical but also symbolic of the cleansing of them spiritually. Well, Moses's little bath for washing their hands in was pretty small, like a bird bath. Look at the size that Solomon builds. Verse 23, then he made the molten sea, no bird bath anymore, calls the sea. It was round 10 cubits from the brim to the brim. Verse 24, under its brim were gourds for 30 cubits in company of the sea. The gourds were in two rows, each with its, uh, with it when it was cast. Verse 25, and stood upon 12 oxen. This is a 10 gallon, a 10,000 gallon sized bath. About the size of a large swimming pool in the backyard. Right? This is huge. And he put it, he made the whole thing out of bronze, he puts it resting in the, in the temple, not in the main building, but outside, on the backs of life-size oxen. Three facing one way, three facing another, three facing another, and another for the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 life-size oxen. And he continues to decorate the place. He hasn't had enough. Verse 28, the construction of the panels round about were covered with lions, oxen, and cherubim. Verse 36, and the surfaces of the stays and panels are covered with cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Verse uh, 49, open the place is covered. Images of almonds, pomegranates. Thing you would imagine. Well, obviously you know what happened in the next chapter. 
when God was, when Solomon prayed and he called God's presence into the place to accept it, God saw the graven images and said, no way. I hate graven images. You're going to have to start all over. All that stuff painted all white. Get those, right? No. Exactly what happened in Exodus 40. When Moses finished the sanctuary and put the ark in the holy place and the glory cloud of God descended upon the ark as a sign that he had built it according to God's specifications. In chapter 8 of 1 Kings, when Solomon finished the temple, again you can see the purpose of it. In verse 6, then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house. The purpose of the temple is to house the ark. He puts it in there, and what happens? God's glory comes, fills the Holy of Holies. And then Solomon begins to pray, and God says, and blesses him for having done this work. They might say, well, those are just decorations. No. These are not just decorations on the walls. Think of the function of the wings of the cherubim. From here on out, God will be called by the title, He who is enthroned on the wings of the cherubim, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and other places. God rests on it like it's his throne. Furthermore, you all know the story. Numbers chapter 21. God sent fiery serpents among the people. And what happened? They repented of their sin. And so then God said to Moses to do what? To uh, cast a serpent out of bronze. A fiery serpent. Numbers chapter 21. Turn there. Numbers, chapter 20, uh, chapter, the book of Numbers after Genesis, you get to Exodus, then Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. The people repent because they've sinned. And God sent the fiery serpents among them. So now they say, we're sorry. And so God says, verse 8, Make a fiery serpent, a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit any man, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's weird. A serpent? I don't think they got the story, right? Well, it's a whole other issue here of what he decides to make, but notice that he God commands Moses to make a graven image of the serpent, no less. Put it on a pole, and now anyone who looks at that serpent, that serpent, will be healed by, the, by God. God is going to heal. He's made a grand image specifically the purpose to heal through. Jesus will speak of this serpent. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, and like the serpent that was raised up on this pole, so must the Son of Man be raised up. Jesus compares himself to that serpent. This isn't just a minor story. Jesus refers to that serpent as an important type for himself through which, through whom God will heal the world when they look upon him on the cross. Okay? So, what, what verse is that? The, uh, uh, Numbers chapter 21. No, oh, Jesus. Uh, John chapter 3. John, story. John chapter 3. He refers to it in the Gospel of John a few other times. So, what's the problem here? Confusion. What you find is if you look through the book of Exodus, you will not find a condemnation of the making of graven images, nor will you find that God hates images. God made the material world. He created the material world. This is not a God that has a problem with the material world. And he created it in forms. It wasn't some amorphous thing in case it might start worshiping itself. Right? So in Exodus chapter 20, we must understand it in this this historical context. What is he saying? Why is he saying what he's saying? And what is he really talking about? Obviously, God is not condemning the making of the graven images. Obviously, God commands graven images to be made in his most holy and sacred places. So what really is at issue there? Idolatry. The making of a graven image that you you will worship as a god. And again, you think, that's weird. I wouldn't do that. In the ancient world, this was common. Look at the book of Lamentations, half the book of Jeremiah. Details of how men would make, take a log, half of it cut down and build a fire and eat. And the other half, you'd 
make a statue out of it. And he would worship it as the god Baal or Mala. But God has no problem with created images to make It's worshiping them, making them in the form of pagan gods, and worshiping them as gods who did not bring them out of Egypt. And that issue comes to a climax, unfortunately, most tragically, just a few chapters later. Exodus chapter 32, you know the story well. Moses is up on the mountain again. And the people gather to Aaron and they say, we don't know where this Moses went that brought us here out of Egypt. And now we're hungry and thirsty and we want to go back home. So Aaron, make us gods that may go before us. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. They say to Aaron, get up. Make us gods that shall go before us. Who is this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt? We don't know what happened to him. He's up there on that smoky mountain. He's probably dead. we got to get back home. It's late. So, make us gods that we make. Notice, it's not make us great images. Make us gods. Now, how does Aaron make gods for them? Again, ancient world, how do you make gods? You start carving Right? You can't separate the two, making of a graven image and idolatry in, in, the, in the pagan world. And so he begins to make them. And he took out a graving tool in verse 4. And he said, most tragically, as he made the molten calf, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. A direct contradiction to the first commandment. I am the Lord who God who made you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall not do this, 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 this. What are they saying? Don't make graven images of foreign gods and worship them. What did they do? Moses makes gods. How does he do it? With a graven tool, out of gold. He makes a calf. He says, these are your gods which have brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is what is being condemned. Not the carving of an image. Otherwise, we have schizophrenia. Furthermore, another example, we all know it well, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, the Israelites are in bondage. They're in exile in, the, in, the, in Babylon. And Daniel and his three friends are in trouble because Nebuchadnezzar decided to make a massive golden statue to worship as a god. And the people are all told to fall down and worship this god. But three friends of Daniel refused to. Meshach, Shedrach, and Abednego. If you turn there to Daniel chapter 3, you can see the, the story. If you can't find it, you can just hold on. We'll just, I can just read it to you. Daniel chapter 3. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar made a great golden image. Well, that doesn't seem so bad. Well, what he does next with it is what's so bad. He tells in verse 4 that all peoples, all nations, and kingdoms bow down and worship this grand image that he's made. And again, notice it's not an issue of simply carving an image. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. So our God, notice it's an issue of the gods. Our God is able to deliver us. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So, what is an issue here? Aaron making a golden calf is not a problem. It's a little bull calf. Right? Solomon built 12 life-size oxen in the temple to hold up the bath of purity, the symbol of the cleanliness of the priest. The issue is not that Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue. Solomon had built two 15-foot golden statues to be in the most holy place of his temple, where God dwelt. The issue in the golden calf story, the issue in Solomon's story, in the, in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, is idolatry. That is worshiping 
something which is not God. Worshiping as if it's God, but it's not. And how do you do this in the ancient world? You build a graven image. And so, you can look at the handout there, the concluding words there. The last paragraph. So we can see how Protestantism is the erroneous interpretation of God's teaching regarding graven images in the Ten Commandments is not only contradicted by a careful examination of the immediate context, but also in numerous examples throughout the rest of sacred scripture. Let us recall the golden cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant whose wings formed the very throne of God upon the earth. The two 15-foot golden cherubim who guard the way into the temple sanctuary. The 12 life-size statues of oxen which supported the bath of purity in the temple. The cherubims, lions, palm trees, gourds, pomegranates, and open flowers that decorated the temple and the bronze servant fashioned that the people of God might live. Thus it is obvious that even from the Bible alone that God did not condemn the making of graven images. And so with the council, we can say, by so much more frequently as they are seen in artistic representation, by so much more readily they are been lifted up to the memory of their prototypes and to a longing after them. Therefore, let us proclaim with the great venerable adherent, the great venerable fathers, and the most blessed and glorious council concerning the iconoclasts of the past and their modern adherents today, unfortunately among our Protestant brethren. They have failed to distinguish between holy and profane, styling the images of our Lord and his saints by the same name as the statues of diabolical idols, applying the venerable image to the things that in Holy Scripture say about idols. So it's a confusion of the two things. It's a confusion of the concept of graven images with the concept of an idol. 